This is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. You can watch this program on Free Speech TV and listen to it on community and independent radio stations nationwide. Former President Donald Trump recently enjoyed dinner with avowed fascist white supremacist Nick Fuentes and anti-Semite Kanye West. Trump, who has announced he will run again for the nation's highest office, and whose Twitter account has been reinstated, ushered in the greatest wave of fascism in the United States in the past half century during his tenure as president. To get an idea of the ideals that he is openly embracing, here's a series of clips compiled by MSNBC of his recent dinner guest, Nick Fuentes. Abortion's popular, sodomy's popular, you know, being gay is popular, being a feminist is popular, sex out of wedlock is popular contraceptives are that's all popular that's all that's not to say it's good that's not to say i like that popular means the people support it which they do and uh and it sucks and it is what it is but that's why we need uh dictatorship <laughs> that's unironically why we need to get rid of all that we need to take control of the media or take control of the government and force the people to believe what we believe. Here's the pathway. We have one more election where white people can make the decision. The white people got to make the right decision and then Trump's got to get in there and never leave. That, to me, at this point is a pathway. It's time to shut up, elect Trump one more time, and then stop having elections. We have got to talk about the fundamentals of our worldview and what it would look like to build a society based on our distinct worldview. It looks like a society where women don't have the right to vote. And it looks like a society where boys and girls get married as teenagers and start having kids and they don't use birth control and they don't use contraceptives and they have big families and a high birth rate. And it looks like women wearing veils at church. And it looks like Women not being in the workforce. Banning gay marriage is back on the menu. Banning sodomy is back on the menu. Banning contraceptives is back on the menu. And basically, we're having something like Taliban rule in America, in a good way. That's the man that GOP 2024 presidential candidate Donald Trump recently had dinner with, the avowed white supremacist Nick Fuentes. Fascism is at this nation's doorstep, and to fight it, we need an anti-fascist movement which, according to my guest Shane Burley, must, quote, confront violence both structurally and ideologically in an effort to unseat its very foundations. Shane Burley is an anti-fascist writer whose work has appeared in places such as NBC News, Jacobin, Al Jazeera, The Baffler, The Daily Beast, Truth Out in These Times and Protean. He's the author of Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance and Surviving the Apocalypse, Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It, and his newest, an anthology that he edited called No Pasaran, Anti-Fascist Dispatches from a World in Crisis. He joins me now to discuss it. Welcome to the program, Shane. Thanks so much for having me. So uh, we heard these shocking things that Nick Fuentes has said, how basically this country needs a dictatorship and that Trump should be elected again and then we should never have elections again. It, and, and Trump had dinner with this man. Um, he is uh, very, very possibly going to be the GOP nominee in 2024, unless Ron DeSantis has something to say about it. It seems as though, you know, there there's no way to... A paper over the fact that we are at a moment where the United States is very uncomfortably close to 
having a very large chunk of its population and its and its officials embracing fascism. It used to be that such words were seen as exaggerations, but no more, right? I think that's right. We're talking about the, I guess, presumptive nominee. Maybe that's going too far, but certainly a, a front runner having an open white nationalist. Um, and other anti-Semites at his event. Um, and this is not just kind of a passive rally or something. These are invitees to a private function. So yeah, absolutely that this is sort of a statement about what's acceptable, not just for Trump, but for the GOP as a whole. So when we look at the uh, way in which the GOP has tried to disavow itself, you know, they want to, especially on the issue of anti-Semitism, they have, you know, tried to say they embrace Jewish Americans and look, they support the state of Israel and therefore that's a good enough reason. And yet, of course, they have flirted with anti-Semitism and avowed white supremacist anti-Jewish racists have appeared at rallies supporting the GOP. Let's talk about this. I know you're working on a book about anti-Semitism and maybe it falls a little bit outside the purview of the of the book that we're discussing. But uh, is this also a, a, an issue that we that really requires clarity, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, open anti-Semitism is often the line that the right will use that separates the sort of mainstream right from white nationalists. It indicates a certain ideological sophistication that they are thinking through their white nationalist politics. It's not just impulsive racism. It, it has sort of an ideology behind it. I think the GOP has built a lot of its identity on trying to suggest it has support from the Jewish community, but for through aggressive support for Israel and for the occupation, um, and then you know gaining support from far right organizations like the Zionist Organization of America. Um, but what they're doing is inculcating basically anti-Semitic conspiracy theories all throughout the GOP and the MAGA circles. We're talking, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene and other folks accusing, you know, Soros of, you know, Jewish space lasers and, and whatever kind of like bizarre conspiracy theories they have using coded language. But someone like Nick Fuentes, quote unquote, names the Jew. He basically says that Jews are engaged in this conspiracy, that they're, you know, an antithesis to Christian values. And it was reviving really open anti-Semitism. Yay as well, Kanye, the, the person that he was there with. And so that turn is one of the most significant ones because it shows what they're willing to do, that they're willing to push through some of the last taboos and that will align them more correctly with the alt-right and with the white nationalist movement. So I think that that's a really clear indication of where they're going um, and that they're willing to even break some of their defensive postures, their, you know, quote unquote, support for the Jewish community through Israel. They're willing to walk away from that and actually jumped right into these fascist politics. So uh, a liberal leaning American might think, um, well, we have the Democratic Party, we have our institutions, we have the you know, media, the mainstream media um, as bulwarks against the kind of extremism that we are seeing unfolding. Why is that not enough? I mean, certainly we've seen in response to the January 6th um, riot against the Capitol, which was as, you know, clear an example of fascist violence as we have seen uh, in recent memory. And we've seen a, a pretty strong response from Democrats in the House and the Senate um, and President Biden, why is that not enough to counter fascism today? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a combination of their inability to do so and their unwillingness to do what's necessary. So one of the really important things about a far right movement is that they really are outside the bounds of normal social institutions. They don't really care what the Democrats say about them. Um, they don't care what the mainstream media says about them. But that has actually become the dominant trend in the GOP as it moves further to the right, as it associates with these sort of anti-establishment far right movements, the MAGA movement, what was called the alt-light for a period of time, basically this, this world of online conspiracy celebrities. Um, so those normal sort of social checks and balances, the ability to, for example, go on the news and call someone a white nationalist when they are a white nationalist, that no longer has the ability to really take down people in a consensus way like that. Um, the other thing is that the state itself is really unable or unwilling to take down far-right movements in any consistent way. So the Jeff Campbell Sixth insurrection does have a lot of prosecutions around it, but those same infrastructure are being used against left-wing activists who have no history of violence in that same way. So it's not something that's consistently used to go after the actual verifiable threat. It's something that's sort of used in political radicalism as such. And so I don't think that it gives people who are on the left or who are really frightened about the rise in racial violence the tools to actually confront it in any meaningful way and instead people have to look at their own communities look at community self-defense and look at how they can build social movements to confront these because those are the only verifiable way to take down the far right and is is part of the issue that the establishment has often just been late to the game right uh, for example when trump first announced his candidacy in 2015 and made very clear that he was running on a platform of racism. It was, you know, he said the words very, very clearly. At that time, the corporate media was loath to call him a racist. They agonized over the use of the word racist. Uh, NPR didn't want to go there um, until about midway through Trump's tenure when he called, you know, the squad of uh, young women of color progressives, um, basically told them to go back to where they came from. At that point, there was a bit of a turning point in corporate media, but that was too late. He was already in power. And, and so it seems as though these establishment forces tend to be encumbered by inertia and tend to act far too late when the train has already left the station, which is perhaps one reason why they're not enough to counter fascism. I mean, that's that's a big part of it. I think they're, they are set up to keep the range of discussion for a very narrow swath of political leaders, and they just simply don't have the tools to kind of sort of deal with this insurgent far-right candidate um, and eventually president. Um, and they were unwilling to really confront what it is because it would create such a divisive line with their audience they are essentially you know um calling uh the president who you know received nearly half the vote um a racist and that would totally sort of discredit them amongst his base and so that was a really tough decision for them to make basically that they didn't want to lose market share for doing that um obviously most places have done that since then they're identifying his rhetoric correctly as racist um but again, they, they are not really built up um, to confront something this insurgent. The other thing about this is that, you know, the Democratic Party in particular is not speaking to working class interests. And Trump, even though it's in a sort of twisted and 
and a contradictory way is speaking towards those issues. And so in a lot of ways, the Democrats are not willing to actually confront the conditions that bring this in the first place, which is the industrialization, wealth inequality, um, the, the shrinking of kind of viable jobs and the increase in precarity, environmental instability. They are not doing anything functional about those. And so they have no kind of um, role in this to confront those underlying issues, which is, again, something that puts them at odds with the rest of the progressive community or activists who are on the ground. The police and law enforcement, state level, federal level, are also seen by mainstream liberals as a bulwark against fascism. And indeed, um, there was a lot of you know support and deference shown to the Capitol Police on January 6th, and the Capitol Police uh, themselves were seen as victims of white supremacists, um, and, and there's been a lot of reliance on police work to try to track down the January 6th rioters. Um, why is that also not enough? And let's use this as a segue into talking about those militant on-the-ground movements of individuals um, and the role that you have seen firsthand that police actually play when it comes to confrontations between fascist forces and anti-fascist forces. So why are police not only not enough, but part of the problem? Yeah, we did talk about this in the book. And in the book, I define anti-fascism as, as, as something that fights fascism that's specifically not a part of the state, so not law enforcement. And one of the, the things that's happened when the script sort of was flipped when Biden was elected, that a lot of liberals who have been really critical of the, the police, the way, particularly the way they handled the 2020 protests and other protest movement during Trump's tenure, was to suddenly see the police as potentially the answer, particularly to confronting the capital insurrection. And there's a series of groups of people that have volunteered for the FBI to come through live streams and stuff to find people to, to help charge around the capital insurrection. And what they failed to understand is that the police are not a neutral agency. It's that they're not something that could be used to wield against your enemies, basically to wield against the racists because you want to see them prosecuted. Clearly, the fact that they are largely not prosecuted shows a certain inequity in the system. But that's not going to be rectified simply by who is sort of active in engaging the police. In reality, the police have a long history of collaboration with far right movements, with being members in far right movements. For example, the Oath Keepers are on trial right now. Um, there's a disproportionate presence of the police inside the Oath Keepers. As someone who documents both far-right protests and anti-fascist counter-demonstrations. I've seen firsthand when the police uh, engage really heavily on anti-fascist protesters with you know, batons, with munitions, with arrests, and do nearly nothing to the far-right protesters on the other side, the ones who are actually wielding guns and have brought weapons. This is a regular feature. We saw it really heavily in 2020, but it's one that's been going very consistently the last few years. And so this idea that simply by empowering the police and directing them maybe sort of at the far-right, you will actually end up taking them down, I think it's not just short-sighted, but it doesn't really understand the historical trajectory of it. And it's not actually witnessing what's happening on the ground. When you empower the police to take on social movements, they come and direct it at the left. They direct it at marginalized communities. They do not direct it at the far right. And the, perhaps the fact that uh, a lot of folks who relied on the police had not seen them in action, um, as you and others have, uh, have you know, had this faith placed in police. Then, of course, we saw the 2020 racial justice uprising after uh, we saw the horrific murder of George Floyd at the hands of police. And there may, you know, be a, that may have been a turning point around a faith in police as well. But let's let's go to what 
anti-fascism looks like and how it traces its origins in a rich history of anti-fascism in this country. Um, you start out talking about how the city of Portland, Oregon became, you know, around uh, before and in the early days of Trump's presidency, became a flashpoint around confrontations between fascist movements and anti-fascist movements. Um, tell me about those uh, those days of the sort of what what has now been labeled Antifa and, you know, was adopted as a name by anti-fascist forces themselves before it became a pejorative, the Rose City Antifa in particular. Yeah, Portland has a long history of anti-fascist uh, demonstrations and movements, actually going all the way back to fighting the Klan in the 20s and the, the German-American boon in the 1930s. But really in the 80s and the 90s, we saw the growth of basically white power skinheads um, and that were basically attacking people across Portland, um, culminating in the, the murder of Mulga Um, And that really helped to rise sort of the Coalition for Human Dignity and anti-racist action, other groups locally and then nationally to confront these far-right groups, to disrupt their organizing, particularly when they're in working class and subcultural spaces, and to make them safe from both marginalized communities and for the left to organize on a lot of the issues that are most important. And that's been a really key part of social movements all across the U.S., all across that history. Community defense is a really important, basically, antidote to the violence that far-right movements sort of try and force particularly on marginalized communities. So we saw this in, in black uh, civil rights and defense organizations in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. We've seen this in the 80s with groups like the John Brown at the Klan Committee and up into the 90s and 2000s. Um, anytime there is a neo-Nazi, far-right, white supremacist movement that threatens a particular community, you have to have community members that are willing to defend them, that don't just rely on the police when the police have proven that they can't be reliable for those or instead actually enact violence themselves. And then in the, as we got a little bit closer to the Trump presidency, we saw the growth of both the alt-right, but also sort of this far-right street movement, the Proud Boys here, a group called Patriot Prayer and others that were holding these large kind of antagonistic rallies and whose members were attacking people in the community. And so not only was there established anti-fascist groups, like you mentioned, Rose City Antifa, but there was other groups that formed and also sort of a mass coalition of people that would pro participate in protest actions that would do things like block roads, um, try and uh, clear out the parties parks where these rallies were happening, basically do what they needed to do to disrupt the recruitment and the threat that those far-right groups posed. Because anytime they come into a community, they're looking to see if they can get away with doing the recruitment and organizing unopposed. And when they are, they grow. This is a a verifiable fact that's been true for 100 years. And it's true that any time an alternative or an anti-fascist group is confronting them, that's taking down their rallies, that's shutting down their events, things like that, that ends up shrinking their ability to grow. Richard Spencer said this. That's one of the reasons he stopped his public tours. This is what has been verifiably true all across uh, the, the death of the alt-right. And it's something that's going to continue to be true as far-right movements rebrand themselves and reapproach. And yet the Democrats and other establishment forces have kind of taken this um, approach of, uh, well, by paying attention to them, you give them oxygen. Um, you know, they, they need to be ignored. They need to be, not be validated by acknowledging that they exist. <laughs> and of course, um, that status quo or accepting that status quo simply leads to them 
flourishing. Uh, you mentioned Richard Spencer, an avowed white supremacist. Um, Milo Yiannopoulos also saw his you know, book deal fall apart, right? And, and his speaking engagements fall apart when he was confronted at UC Berkeley and other uh, campuses that he attempted to speak at. And all of this is the result of organized grassroots anti-fascist movement building in cities. So what does that look like, Shane? Um, you know, <laughs> there's been much said about Antifa and a lot of fear mongering around that. And of course, Donald Trump wanted to brand Antifa a terrorist organization. It's not, ter it's not an organization to begin with, right? It's an ideology. So, so how do you explain what Antifa really means on the ground in, you know, a city where one of my audience members might be sitting in today? Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that Democratic leaders oppose this is because it is a direct action movement that doesn't require on them as technocrats to sort of control how politics works. You know, an anti-fascist movement takes a lot of forms. It can be like militant anti-fascist groups like we were talking about, folks that disrupt events um, that might come in block block, things like that. It also involves church groups. It involves labor unions. It involves other community organizations. It involves large coalitions of people who are willing to use on-the-ground tactics this can become in a variety of ways, like big protest events, big marches, whatever it may be, to sort of disrupt the functionality of far-right movements to put their individual uh, members under pressure. You know, maybe there's public campaigns to, uh, to have them out of that work, things like that, um, to basically disrupt their co cogency so that they're able to, they're unable to really sort of replicate themselves. And so when we're talking about anti-fascism, we're not just talking about one type of organizing. We're talking about a mass movement that comes across all demographics, all parts of the country, and tries to build social networks that are able to bring a mass of people together to disrupt that functionality. And so in a way, it is a form of mass politics. People getting together, building relationships, just like they do with other types of organizing, just like they do with labor organizing or tenant organizing, mutual aid organizing, and using that to find tactics that can disrupt the far right, that can protect communities from attack and that can do it in an ongoing way. And so what we saw with the entry of Trump was a sort of mass realization that a large a large contingent of people are going to be required to actually do anything here. Um, and so we've seen the ability of new groups to form, of more people to come out to mass actions, of more people to join protests. And that means that anti-fascism has more people at its disposal to build tactics and strategies from. And so as we're going forward, we're talking about more and more people getting involved in a really creative movement in each city and sometimes across cities, across geographies, across uh, borders to go ahead and confront those far-right movements as they form. The whole goal being is to disrupt that functionality. So there are targets like uh, like uh, uh, Joey Gibson of Proud Boys and, of course, Richard Spencer or people like Nick Fuentes. But then what about the GOP? What about Ron DeSantis? What about Donald Trump himself? What about every person in the Trump orbit um, who, you know, at one point or another has thrown their lot in with the ostensible leader of the fascist movement in the United States today, are they legitimate targets for disruption? I think it really depends. It's a case-by-case -case basis. I think a lot of them have proven to be because the GOP has decided to ally itself with open white nationalists in a lot of cases. That is the, the bridge that people have used to say, okay, this is not just a 
political gathering that we disagree with. This actually has like explicitly threatening white racial overtones to it. And that was the deal with Patriot Prayer, who you mentioned, which was at first claiming itself to be simply be a conservative group, except that white nationalists started attending and they essentially ostensibly uh, protected them. And so I think when, when a large movement like the GOP, a large political organization decides that it's going to collaborate with open white nationalists, it's fair game for anti-fascists who are going to push back on that. And so I think the question is, do they rise to that status? And frankly, more often than before, they do. And now we see that even folks like Ron DeSantis in the national conservative movement, which you know is a very thinly veiled far right nationalist, sometimes openly white nationalist part of the GOP. The question really is, what do they have that's different than what we identified as fascism five or 10 years ago? Not that much. And so I think this is actually a testament to the change of the GOP, which has been true in right-wing politics all across Europe and Israel and other places. But it, the, what it is a testament to that they are now pushing so far to the right that they become indistinguishable with other far-right movements. Let's talk about violence and the role of violence. If you just read the corporate media or listen to Democrats and Republicans, um, you will essentially hear that left anti-fascist movements use violence as a tool um, because they may engage in property destruction occasionally. But you rarely hear the uh, calling out of the very real use of violence, which is armed right wingers, literally touting weapons, using open carry laws or sometimes not, um, you know, the, the violent mob um, in on January 6, 2021, uh, 2020, that um, 2021, that uh, that that just, you know, basically uh, showed very clearly that they consider violence to be their first resort. Um, how do you explain that when you are talking about Antifa? Because there's just been so much misunderstanding and misinformation around violence. I don't consider community self-defense violence. I think that anti-fascist movements are defensive movements. Um, they actually block the far-right attacks. Far-right movements are intrinsically violent. Um, and you see this on the ground every single time. The Proud Boys go into spaces explicitly to attack you know, residents of the city or uh, marginalized communities, queer communities, things like that. And what's standing in the way of that is community self-defense. You know, uh, this is kind of, it's been interesting because groups like the John Brown Gun Club have recently kind of been tarnished online, despite being the groups that have been standing in protecting a lot of queer events that have been attacked as groomers and they have gotten a lot of threatening responses from the far right. And so the reality is that these groups actually keep people safe. And if you look at the numbers, it's pretty clear the far right is overwhelmingly I mean, overwhelmingly the most violent institution in this conflict and they are the ones that are attacking people they're the ones that have a body count and they're the ones that we have to be made safe from so i think that it's sort of an unfortunate both sides rhetoric that you see oftentimes in media reports on this that's claiming that when groups get together and try and defend themselves or protect themselves from far-right attacks they are engaging in two-sided violence but that is simply not the case the numbers don't bear that out and reality doesn't bear it out and uh there what does that look like on the ground as well um you point out um in your book that essentially, or I believe it might be the person who uh, uh, wrote the forward to your book or the introduction to your book, that uh, often anti-fascists are fighting a 
three-way battle, right? They're not just battling these right-wing forces, they're battling police, uh, they're defending communities, uh, both the police and often the uh, fascist forces groupings, um, non-state groupings are armed, right? And so it, they, they are sort of two sides of the same coin. Yeah, I mean, they're armed at disproportionate rates. Um, they're engaging in violence at disproportionate rates. Um, they sort of employ a certain revolutionary, violent, defensive rhetoric right off the bat. Um, three-way fight, the three-way kind of distinction you mentioned is that like in a lot of contests, in sort of this struggle to change the world, there really are like three... Um, uh, there are many audiences, but they can kind of uh, designate three, you know, one, the left or the workers movement, people trying to defend marginalized folks, you have uh, capital, the rich, you know, folks who own wealth, and then you have a kind of third party, which isn't exactly the same as the rich, but also really doesn't have the same interests as, you know, kind of working classes or marginalized folks. And that's the far right, which can be made up of working class folks, it can also be made up of rich folks. Um, but basically, when you're in that contest, it's not just us struggling against, say, like our boss or politicians for a better life, we also have to defend ourselves from this kind of insurgent movement, which uses the rhetoric of literary but uses it to defend white supremacy. And so when we're thinking about like larger social issues, we have to think about it in this more complex framework because the far right adds that level of complexity to it. And again, like you're saying, they bring in such an immediate level of violence, one that is not interceded on by the police so that it's up to communities to figure out ways to keep themselves safe. And so uh, finally, Shane, then looking ahead to 2024, perhaps sooner, um, for those who are deeply disturbed, maybe they're just now sort of seeing that with Trump's embrace uh, of people like Nick Fuentes and Gay, that, uh, that, you know, who want to get involved, who want to proudly call themselves anti-fascist, that they should find uh, local organizations that are doing that work on the ground and get involved, right, to mobilize, um, which of course is challenging given that often on the left, we can be our own uh, worst enemy sometimes when it comes to infighting or um, because we too are uh, often susceptible to the uh, language and the logic of the corporate media and that we tend to debate amongst ourselves whether we should or shouldn't confront uh, right-wing, far-right figures. Uh, But but basically that's the best option, right? To get involved in on-the-ground movements in your local community. Absolutely. I mean, get involved in established organizations or, or establish your own organization that's involved in work that can engage in coalitions. So a lot of that means open anti-fascist work, you know, people organizing demonstrations that confront the far right, but not just them, mutual aid organizations that support people who participate in those that help communities meet their needs, um, tenant unions, uh, labor unions, things that are able to do different pieces of this important fight, but then find a way for them to collaborate on these mass actions that are necessary to decentralize stabilize the far right. Being a part of a coalition that maybe each group does their own thing that's slightly different, but finding ways of having permanent collaboration that they can come together to accomplish those tasks, that is what the most effective anti-fascist movements look like. They have stable anti-fascist organizations that do this work all the time, but then those organizations have to rely that masses of people are going to come in. The best way to do that is through that coalition work. So getting involved in local organizing is the most important piece of this. I think a lot of people see such an international 
problem and they think, okay, I have to figure out how to join an international movement. But starting in one kind of locality, one organization, one purpose is a great way to get going and then figure out how to create a collaborative framework. And, you know, when we hit 2024, we likely have two contesting, uh, two candidates, one Trump, the other DeSantis, both of which bring in this national far right rhetoric, um, both of which are going to raise the stakes on this rhetoric and will increase the presence of this kind of violent anti-immigrant queer phobic um, social movement on the ground. So we have a threat no matter who's going to be the front runner here. And so we have to respond accordingly. Shane, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Um, good luck to you with the book. We didn't even, there's so much more to talk about. Your book is a, a, a brilliant anthology of numerous writers. And actually, before I let you go, can you throw out some of the names of, of authors who have contributed to the anthology? Oh, yeah, there's a ton of great folks. Uh, Tal Levin does the foreword. David Renton does the afterword. Uh, Kim Kelly is in it. Emily Grosinski. Um, uh, Matt Lyons, Sarah Lamont Jenkins. Um, there, there's a ton of really great folks in there, GMR. Um, and I think there's about 25 contributors all told. So it's a big anthology with lots of different um, ideas, lots of different kind of perspectives and different uh, social movements that are going to be represented. Thank you again so much, Shane, and good luck to you. Thanks so much. My guest has been Shane Burley. He's an anti-fascist writer whose work has appeared in places such as NBC News, Jacobin, Al Jazeera, The Baffa, The Daily Beast, Truth Out, In These Times, and Protean. He's the author of Why We Fight, Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse, Fascism Today, What It Is and How to End It. And we've been discussing his newest, an anthology that he edited called No Pasaran, Anti-Fascist Dispatches from a World in Crisis. I'm Sonali Kolhatkar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, Rising Up with Sonali.com by becoming a subscriber. Find our audio podcast on iTunes and Spotify and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Are You with Sonali?